Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. Today's music, Howe Heyo, is from Smithsonian Folkways and is particularly relevant. It comes from Heartbeat, Voices of First Nations Women, from the ceremony on social songs traditionally sung by women of the Seneca, Cherokee, Creek, Dine tribes, and other music now performed by women and material that combines traditional and contemporary themes in musical forms. And for all of us in the Not Old Better Show audience, we will remember the greatest athlete of all time. Not Babe Ruth, not Will Chamberlain, and not Jim Brown, but Jim Thorpe. Thank you so much for listening. We've got a great guest today whom I will introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 662nd episode and we spoke to historian and genealogist Jenny Ashcraft about new headlines and what they teach us about ancestry from newspapers.com. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Smithsonian associate Dr. Mark Seifer about his new book, Tesla, Wizard at War, about Nikola Tesla's war efforts and technology. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. If you missed those episodes, you can go back, check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notoldbetter.com. And if you leave a review, we will read it at the end of each show. We've got a good one to read to you today. So please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate and Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Marinus. David Marinus will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and you can check our website in the show notes today for more details. The title of David Marinus's presentation is Jim Thorpe, Outracing the Odds. We will be talking with David Marinus today about his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. People were eager to see the big Indian as soon as he returned to America. He was a celebrity now, a global sensation after winning two gold medals at the 1912 Olympic Games in Stockholm, where the dapper King of Sweden was said to have called him the greatest athlete in the world. The first public stop on home soil was in Boston, where a local newspaper heralded his exalted status by suggesting he pose as the Indian on the flip side of the Buffalo nickel. Boston's mayor, an avid sports fan nicknamed Honey Fitz, challenged him to a race in the 100-yard dash at the Elks Club picnic on August 11th. John Francis Fitzgerald, almost 50, and five years away from becoming the grandfather of a future president, jocularly boasted that he might not need a head start to keep up with James Francis Thorpe. Speechwriters for William Howard Taft, the current president, a sporty walrus who weighed 350 pounds, were already drafting a letter of praise on behalf of the nation, asserting the fond hope that Jim Thorpe's Olympic victories in the pentathlon and decathlon would, as he said, serve as an incentive to all to improve those qualities which characterize the best type of American citizen. The White House seemed clueless about the fact that the United States government did not yet consider Thorpe any type of citizen, best or otherwise. From Boston, it was on to Carlisle, New York, and Philadelphia, where exuberant crowds jostled for the best view of the new American Colossus. An American Indian mythologized into spectacle. It was a familiar scene that had played out in strikingly parallel fashion almost 80 years earlier, in 1833 when Black Hawk was paraded through cities on the East Coast. At the heart of their fame, 
Blackhawk, and Jim Thorpe, warrior and athlete, were the best-known Indians in America, and they would remain among the most renowned of all time. But the connection was deeper and more spiritual. Blackhawk and Thorpe, both members of the Sac and Fox Nation, also came from the same clan, the Thunder Clan. They were connected to lineage through Thorpe's paternal grandmother, Notenequa, who might have been Blackhawk's grandniece, although the documentation is imprecise. As a boy growing up in the Indian Territory that later became part of Oklahoma, Thorpe was told by his mother that he was the reincarnation of Blackhawk. Both Thorpe and Blackhawk were curiosities to the dominant Anglo-Saxon society, alternately noble and tragic, and often inscrutable, as seen through the distorted cultural lens of whiteness. Blackhawk, carrying with him a mystical medicine bag made from the skin of the raptor from which he took his name, made his eastern tour as a manacled prisoner of war, an exotic Indian leader who had rebelled against the ever-expanding reach of white settlers into ancestral tribal lands in the Middle West. He lived during a time when an American president, Andrew Jackson, gained notoriety as an Indian killer, and killing Indians was part of the nation's providential plan. Thorpe, carrying with him the medals and trophies from which he took his fame, made his tour as a prisoner of his own athletic success. An Indian who in his youth had been shipped off to a school in Pennsylvania run by the federal government, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, where the official policy was to exterminate Indians not in body, but in language, dress, behavior, tradition, and soul. Cut their hair and outfit them in uniforms resembling those worn by the enemies of their forefathers, the U.S. Cavalry. Kill the Indian, save the man. And that, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate, author, Pulitzer Prize winner, David Marinus, reading from his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe rose to world fame as a mythic talent who excelled at every sport. He won gold medals in the decathlon and pentathlon at the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. He was on an all-American football team. He was an all-American football player at the Carlisle Indian School, the star of the first class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and played Major League Baseball for John McGraw's New York Giants. Even in a golden age of sports celebrities, he was one of a kind. But despite his colossal skills, Jim Thorpe's life was a struggle against the odds. As a member of the Sac and Fox Nation, he encountered duplicitous authorities who turned away from him when their reputations were at risk. His gold medals were unfairly rescinded because he had played minor league baseball. His later life was troubled by alcohol, broken marriages, and financial distress. We'll discuss all of this and America's greatest all-around athlete who, for all his travails, did not succumb. The man survived, complications and all, and so did the myth. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, David Marinus. David Marinus, welcome to the program. Great to be here. So nice to talk to you. Such a great time for a conversation about this wonderful book of yours. We're going to get into that, of course. Uh, and I've got a copy of the book right here in my hand. Thank you for sending it to me. <laughs> it's a great book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. I'm excited to talk to you about this and your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And let's just start there at the 
at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Please just tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about there. Well, the, the wonderful part about it is that I'll be in conversation with Kevin Gover, who was the former head of the uh, National Museum of the American Indian, where I'll be speaking in their auditorium, and also the former head of the uh, Indian Bureau in the Department of Interior, and a Pawnee Indian. And Kevin and I did a somewhat similar event at the National Book Festival um, in September. And I was honored to be on the stage with him and to have sort of his uh, stamp of approval for this book. So I'm very much looking forward to another conversation with Kevin where there is so much to talk about. He promises to get into subjects that we couldn't even deal with the first time. That's great. Yeah, I... uh... I'm excited to talk to you too, of course, and, and feel very honored. Um, this this book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe is, is excellent. It, it really tells this great story of Jim Thorpe, who King Gustav of Sweden says, and, and you uh, let us know this early in our, our conversation today, he was considered the greatest athlete in the whole world. Why was Thorpe considered the greatest athlete in the whole world at that time? Well, the the world part of it is key. It's because of the Olympics, where much of the world was participating in 1912 in Stockholm, Sweden. And Jim Thorpe dominated those Olympics. And he did so in a way that made him, obviously, the greatest all-around athlete alive. Um, He competed in 17 events in about a little over two weeks. Imagine that. And in in two of those, um, in the pentathlon, which was five events, and the decathlon, which was 10 events, um, he won them both. And he did so, and those are all around events where you have to excel in running, in jumping high and far, and in throwing weights, the shot put, the discus, and the and the uh, hammer. And he trounced the field in both of those events. Um, winning by a larger margin than anyone before and almost anyone since. And so at the end of that, of those two weeks, when he was presented his gold medals and trophies for winning those events, King Gustav declared him, you, sir, are the most wonderful athlete in the world. Amazing. Yeah, he he definitely trounced the field. He he was just this outstanding athlete. And, and the book, I think, goes into some some really great details about that. But the book also talks about the struggle against racism and discrimination that was going on. What was happening maybe more broadly during the Jim Thorpe era, it, you know, in sports and society? You know, there was this anti-Indian sentiment, but all of this kind of worked against Jim Thorpe. Well, it started actually um, the year he was born in 1887. I mean, his part of the story of that discrimination and struggle. Um, 1887 happened to be the year of what was known as the Dawes Act, which was an attempt, another attempt by the U.S. government um, to take away native lands. Um, in this case, by eliminating communal property and trying to turn the native uh, race into uh, private landowners. So this happened in Oklahoma, in the Indian Terry of Oklahoma and throughout um, the Plain States in the West. Um, and that was at the start of Jim Thorpe's life. Then <clears throat> for much of his uh, childhood and early adulthood, uh, he was in Indian boarding schools um, where there was an effort to basically take away um, uh, native culture, heritage, language, uh, religion, 
and in, a, in an effort of forced assimilation. Um, on the sporting side of it, Jim, like many of his uh, Native American teammates, um, was constantly reduced to stereotypes. Was constantly reduced to stereotypes. Um, you know, they were constant. They were said to be on the war path and taking scalps, and they were all called chief, whether they were or not. And most, almost all of them were not. Um, it was all part of part, and and you know, redskins and red men and uh, big engines. Um, all of that was just a normal part of the description of Native American athletes during the period of Jim Thorpe's life. Yeah, you, you so generously read uh, a passage from the book. Um, and in that passage, you, ta- you, you reference these, these, this phrase, kill the Indian, save the man. And there's another phrase in the book that I found, low the poor Indian. We kind of get a, a sense of kill the Indian, save the man from that, that time at Carlisle. But maybe tell us what these phrases meant, uh, particularly low the poor Indian. Well, I'll start with kill the Indian, save the man, which was a concept <clears throat> formed when the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was uh, uh, founded in 1879, um, only three years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And the first uh, young students who were sent to Carlisle were mostly Lakota Sioux, um, young people from the Lakota Sioux. And they thought they were going there to show their bravery and probably to die. Um, And it it was actually an effort by um, Richard Henry Pratt, the founder, who thought he was doing something good and progressive, and that the only way to allow the Indian race to survive was to turn them into white people. Um, So it was dehumanizing, but thought unwittingly um, thought he was doing well. Love the Poor Indian, uh, I found fascinating because it's a phrase from a poem um, by Alexander Pope written centuries earlier. Um, And it was meant to write about sort of the the naturalistic instinct of Indians. Um, But somehow in the early 20th century, it was latched onto by sports writers and applied to Native Americans, um, whatever they were doing. Low the poor Indian, whether they were doing something good or bad or struggling or succeeding. Um, it was a constant phrase, and I use it in the book um, at the critical moments of Jim Thorpe's life when he was faced with obstacles presented to him by white society. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates programs here on KSCW, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our KSCW audience can explore our website, for more information at notold-better.com. We are with author and journalist David Marinus. David Marinus will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. We'll put links to our audience can find out more information about David Marinus, his work, his uh, upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates, as well as his new book, 
Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. I found that Patty Lowe, who is director for the Center for Native American and Indigenous Research at Northwestern, is also a member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe Indians. She says that The Path Lit by Lightning is a captivating book by a master storyteller. David Marinus provides new insights to Jim Thorpe, a man who is not only the world's greatest athlete, but a cultural icon complicated by the dynamics of race and celebrity. David Marinus, the the reputation that you have for research is is amazing. And the, and the book is just, um, I, I found just chock-a-block full of these great research nuggets. You also have this really interesting way of referring to research as the four legs of the table. And I wonder if you'd tell us about your research and the challenges, particularly in researching uh, Jim Thorpe as part of these four legs and and this, you know, with the backdrop of COVID, because you, you couldn't do a couple of these things. No, that's absolutely true. This book was, <laughs> I mean, I tried to apply the four legs, but this book was a challenge in some of those ways. Um, the four legs of the table that I talk about, the first one is go there, wherever there is for the uh, for my book to understand the, the sort of geography, the cultural geography of the places that shaped the person I'm writing about. So for Vince Lombardi, for instance, my biography of the Green Bay Packers football coach, I actually turned to my wife and uttered the immortal loving words, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? Uh, (laughs) Which we did, and it made all the difference. Um, And I sort of paid it back to her with a lot of the other books I wrote, you know, taking her to uh, Puerto Rico for Clemente and Kenya and and Hawaii for Obama. But in any case, in this case, I wanted to live in in Oklahoma, uh, but COVID got in the way, and we'll get to that a little later. The second um, leg of the table is interviews. And again, this this book was somewhat different in that sense, in that Jim Thorpe died in 1953. He was born in 1887. There is no no contemporary of Jim Thorpe's who's alive or close. Even his seven children, who all live to a fairly old age, are are gone. Um, So... Uh, and all of his contemporaries are. So I relied more on oral history interviews than I could interviewing people who knew Jim Thorpe. Um, The third uh, leg of the table, which was the most important by far in this case, um, was um, archival documents, primary documents. And I I went to probably 20 different archives um, to get the material for this book, um, ranging from the Beinecke uh, Library at Yale University, which had the papers of Richard Henry Pratt, the founder of Carlisle, um, to the Oklahoma Historical Society, which had many of the papers of of Thorpe and of the second Fox Nation from which he came, um, to the Cumberland County Historical Society in Pennsylvania, um, which had many of the archives of of that place, time and place. And then... um, the uh, University of Illinois had the had the Avery Brundage uh, f- papers, and he was the not only a, a teammate of Thorpe's on the 1912 uh, Olympic team, but also the head of the the future head of the of the International Olympic Committee. So all of the Olympic uh, records that I needed were there. Um, and luckily, you know, the internet can be a force for good or bad, but in this case, it it was mostly good because. So many primary documents are now being digitized. So all of the government records about the Carlisle Indian School were digitized. 
as were many of the old newspapers that I needed to, to understand that era. So that's the third leg and crucial in this case. And the fourth leg um, is to look for what's not there. In other words, to not accept the conventional story or the mythology and try to break through to the real story. And with Jim Thorpe, as with any um, great figure, there's a mythology that's built around that story. Um, and you have to sort of find out what really happened and what didn't. You've written so many excellent books, and, and you, you reference Vince Lombardi and going to Green Bay. I'm sorry <laughs> for your wife, but Puerto Rico and Roberto Clemente, not not a bad, bad second there. And, of course, going to Hawaii, you've written a wonderful book about Barack Obama. But you've written about Bill Clinton, too. But I want to talk to you about Vince Lombardi, Roberto sure. Clemente, and Jim Thorpe. What were the connections that you saw between those uh, those individuals and those biographies? Well, there were there was both a, a connection that was important to me for choosing to write the book, and then other connections that that helped illuminate the story. Um, for me, you know, I'm looking for two things when I write a, a biography that ostensibly is about sports. Um, first, it has to have a dramatic arc to it. And all three of those characters certainly did in their sporting lives. But second, it has to illuminate something larger. So for Lombardi, it was not just about a great football coach, but about leadership and about competition and success in American life, what it takes and what it costs. For for Clemente, it was not just about a beautiful ball player, but also about that rare athlete who transcended um, his sport and was what one could honestly call heroic. So many athletes are called heroes and almost none are, but Clemente truly was, both in the way he lived his life and in the way he died trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake. So with Jim Thorpe, um, it was not just about this unparalleled athletic achievement, but also a way for me to use that to illuminate American history and sociology and the experience of Native Americans through his life. What they had in common, I would say, are one, that they both had to come obstacles of, of discrimination. Um, Lombardi often felt that he was discriminated against because he was a dark-skinned Italian. Um, he didn't get his real shot to be a head coach until he was almost 45 and about to quit coaching and go into being a banker. Um, Roberto Clemente had to to deal with the double prejudices of race and language as a black uh, Puerto Rican. Um, and Jim Thorpe, of course, had to deal with it as a Native American. And beyond that, I think they shared an enormous will and perseverance to overcome the obstacles that they faced. Yeah, it- you know, in talking about the Native American prejudice, there was this really interesting element. I, I didn't even know as much about it as as I learned from your book, and that was the the issue of of uh, citizenship. And and I wonder if you'd talk for just a moment or two about, you know, really one of the book's most important chapters, although, again, I, I just didn't realize this part of it. And and tell us maybe about the, the events that led to the confiscation of Jim Thorpe's Olympic medals, because that that's fascinating. Yes. And he wasn't a citizen at the time he won the medals because, uh, you know, the U.S. government um, – had so many obstacles in the way of, of Native Americans becoming citizens. And Native Americans, on the other hand, had their own nations, you know. And so um, the whole issue of citizenship was was sort of two-edged in that sense. But Jim Thorpe 
after he won his gold medals, um, a story broke in a paper in Worcester, Massachusetts, saying that he had played um, Bush League baseball for two summers, 1909 and 1910, in the Eastern Carolina League, and was paid maybe $2 a game or $30 a month for that. Um, and so, so therefore, he was a professional, and he was not eligible to compete in the amateur, quote-unquote, Olympics. There's so many sides of injustice to that. The first is that scores of college athletes um, were playing summer baseball um, during that era for pay, but most of them were doing it with using aliases. There were so many aliases in the Eastern Carolina League where Jim played that it was called the Pocahontas League because everyone claimed to be named John Smith. Dwight Eisenhower, the future president, played in the Kansas State League under the name Wilson. Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. His name was in the newspapers in North Carolina in those years before the Olympics, um, from Charlotte to Raleigh to all the small towns of, of the Eastern Carolina League. Um, but it didn't break as a scandal until after the Olympics, a scandal I put in quotes. Um, the other, there are two other issues. One is a technical issue, um, which is that the Olympic rules stated that any challenge to amateurism had to be filed within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. The story um, didn't break until six months later, later so it was beyond the, the scope of the, of the challenge. Um, just technically, he shouldn't have lost the, the medals. But there's a much deeper uh, moral, and moral issue and hypocrisy. The moral issue has to do with what is an amateur. Um, one of his teammates on that Olympic team was George S. Patton, the future general, who competed in a, a separate event called the Modern Pentathlon, which involved largely military skills, target shooting, equestrian fencing, and so on. And Patton was being paid by the U.S. Army to train for those, for those events. Was he an amateur or a professional? Um, Jim Thorpe uh, played baseball, which had nothing to do with the events he was um, competing in in the Olympics. The entire Swedish national team was given a leave of absence from their jobs with full pay six months before the start of the Olympics. Were they amateurs or professionals for that? Um, and furthermore, many college football players and other athletes were being paid under the table during that era, including uh, the Carlisle Indians. So the, the whole issue of amateurism was, was somewhat of a sham. Then the final Part of that is the hypocrisy of people in power who knew what Jim was doing, but lied about it to save their reputations. Um, Pop Warner is coach at Carlisle, both in football and in track and field. Um, definitely knew what Thorpe was playing summer baseball because so many of the Carlisle Indian athletes were doing that for years before. Um, they were often scouted by one of Pop Warner's best friends and colleagues in Pennsylvania College Athletics to go down to play in Rocky Mount, North Carolina uh, for the Rocky Mount Railroaders. Um, Thorpe met with Warner at least twice for several hours during that period. And it just uh, stretches the imagination to, to think that, Thorpe, that Warner did not know. He did. But when the issue arose after that story in 1913, Werner denied all knowledge of it to save his own reputation, as did the superintendent at Carlisle, Moses Friedman, 
who documents show wrote letters to Thorpe urging him not to play summer baseball. He claimed he didn't know. And finally, James E. Sullivan, the head of the Amateur Athletic Union then, and of the American Olympic Committee, who also was on the board of advisors for the Carlisle Athletic Association. All three of those men, very important figures, who made the determination to send the medals back and to strip Jim of his uh, records. All of them knew what he was doing, uh, but then feigned ignorance. And that's the hypocrisy to go along with the moral injustice and the technical wrong of what happened. Mm -hmm. So well said. And, and the book, again, is wonderful. David Marinus, our guest, the book is Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. As, as if that you know, wasn't enough, all of that, David Marinus, Jim Thorpe went on to live a, a, a life of hardship. He definitely not lit by lightning, and, and Jim Thorpe probably deserved better. He, he, he knew you know, he was in the dugout with Babe Ruth and, and Christy Matheson. He, you know, he played with with Dwight Eisenhower and for Pop Warner. He knew Avery Brundage, all these powerful people. Yet despite all of that and despite Jim Thorpe's own persistence and courage, he really had some um, very shameful treatment. And so many American Indians endured this. I, I wonder, just as a final question, what, what can we learn from Thorpe about the Native American culture and this idea that it was alternately noble and tragic, as you as you read from from your chapter. Yeah, I mean, the Native Americans were uh, romanticized and diminished at the same time, and that effort to essentially um, forcibly assimilate them into white society is at the center of this book and the resistance that Jim and so many other Native Americans had to that. So I would close by saying that in 1915. The most popular statue in America was called The End of the Trail. It depicted an Indian on slumped on horseback, defeated, um, implying that, uh, that manifest destiny had prevailed, that progress rendered the native race uh, anachronistic, that it was dying and would soon be dead. And at that time, there were fewer than 300,000 Native Americans left in this country. Um, but it didn't happen. Um, the, the native race learned how to survive, um, persisted, and um, today there are, there are several million. They managed to hold on to most parts of their culture, um, and that's uh, revived in this modern day, um, and there are a few million now. And I, I sort of think about that and Jim Thorpe being emblematic of that, of all of the obstacles that were put in his way most of them by society, some of his own doing. He struggled with alcohol and with being away from his family too much. Um, but he persisted and he kept trying for something better. And in the end, his family did succeed. His, his seven children all had very successful lives, as did the grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I look at Jim as sort of emblematic of the entire race of Native Americans in this country. David Marinus has been our guest today. David Marinus will be at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. We're going to have links so that our audience can find out all the information about the Smithsonian Associates presentation by David Marinus. David Marinus's books, all of his work, um, 
course, author of the new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Just this excellent book, getting great reviews to David Marinus. Um, Buster Olney, ESPN senior writer and analyst, says before Shohei Otane, before Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson, Jim Thorpe was the world's greatest athlete. And David Marinus tells Thorpe's extraordinary, tragic story with all the power and detail that this Native American hero deserves. David Marinus, thanks so much for your generous time for reading. Thanks for this fantastic book. Uh, I just really enjoyed it. I want to recommend it highly to our audience. But uh, have a great rest of your day. We look forward to seeing you uh, at Smithsonian Associates coming up. That's terrific, Paul. Thank you for your questions. I really enjoyed it. Our review today is from Joseph Mejorado. It's from September 13th, 2022. Joseph Mejorado says, good works. Through this show, I find something that improves my daily life. Really good job. Thank you, Joseph. And my thanks to David Marinus for his generous time today and for generously reading from his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful, not old, better show audience on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, which I'm telling you each show, followed by my message to eliminate assault rifles. Only members of the military use these weapons. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, school. Let's do better. Let's eliminate these assault rifles. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.